I, I was, there's a lot, I feel like I could say, stories I could tell about just the planting of the church in the last three years and how they've been. And um, I was enjoying the temperature yesterday and sitting around my fire pit and just thinking about the church. And uh, where my thoughts went to was thinking of church and of the story of our church and the, where we're at right now as a marriage. And one of the things I, I was reminded of um, was that of any year, I had heard this at one time, and if it's not exactly true, I think it's true-ish, of that of any year, if you're like, on average, when people get divorced, what year are they in their marriage? And the highest number, when I looked into it, was year three. That in a marriage, most divorces have to happen at year three in a marriage. And looking at, you know, the honeymoon is over and it's kind of like, like you're, you're starting to kind of get into a lot of nitty and gritty type things potentially. So, so you know, that came to mind <laughs> of like year three is, is a common year for divorce and, um, and thinking of our church and what we've been through and uh, been through a lot in, in three years. Uh, but then also... Uh, how um, another part of it is I remember I had conversations with mom and dad where we were talking about Patty and I's marriage and their marriage. And I remember they made the the statement that when they looked back at what their relationship was like when they first got married compared to how I think I remember my dad saying, "When, when I look at my relationship with your mom now, Versus when we first got married, I remember him saying, it was like we didn't even know each other. And it was like we didn't even really love each other compared to where we're at now. And I'm, I'm, I'm very aware that that's not everybody's story in a marriage. But one thing that we could say is by the grace of God, that can be true, right? By God's grace, that can be true. And what my hope and prayer, and as I was thinking about it yesterday, like that's where I went to, was like, Lord, would you allow us as a church 15, 20 years from now to look back at truly life-changing, amazing things that happened in people's lives in the first three years, where we look back and kind of be like, we were just kids then. <laughs> you know, like, like we were just getting to know each other. We were just maybe getting to know Jesus, and would, in, in a way that can happen in a marriage, Lord, would our church have a story like that, that? That now, down the road, the relationship we have with each other, the relationship we have with Jesus, the way that we are in our community, uh, w- would we see God do a similar thing? And man, that's just my, my heart for us, my heart for us as we step into this third year. And next week, we're going to be kicking off the book of Genesis and um, you might be like, oh yeah, that's like an elementary level book of the Bible. It's the first one, so it's probably like the bottom shelf, and then it just gets more complicated or complex or whatever from there. Um, but man, I'd really encourage you to try and be engaged and present in this series as we go through the book of Genesis. I, I've just, as I've been studying it, as I've been diving into all sorts of areas connected to the book of Genesis, I... I've just been like, man, I feel like this could rock us. Like, rock us to our core 
in the best of ways. And today we're going to do kind of like a preview and a background in an area getting ready to go through the book of Genesis. Um, but, uh, you know, I'm just praying that this book could influence us more than any book we've preached through up till now in the life of our church and needed for the cultural moment that we're living in right now. So today, what we're going to look at is the person that God chose to write the book of Genesis. So all 66 books are co-authored. God breathes out scripture, and we can trust the accuracy of that. Theopneustos was the Greek word that God breathed. So God is the author of every book, and he uses humans as instruments with their vocabulary, with their abilities uh, to write books of the Bible too. And so today we're looking at the life of Moses. And some of you might be like, man, I've known about Moses my entire life. I preached at a um, homeless shelter in Oklahoma City, and I was preaching on Joshua. And part of my introduction was kind of acknowledging to the room, we all know who Moses is. Many of us don't know who Joshua is, who followed Moses. And I remember when I said the phrase, we all know who Moses, we've all heard of Moses. I think I said, we've all heard of Moses. There were people that looked at each other. I was like, never heard the name entire life. Never heard the name, you know. And so whether this is the first time you've ever heard the name Moses, and this isn't an intellectual like those people are morons, you know. This is a, um, this is why we're doing what we're doing, is that um, I had a mentor of mine that says, just because people don't know something doesn't mean that they're, they're less intellectual than you. They're just uninformed in that area. So what he said was, inform them. <laughs> and so, you know, our heart as a church even, is in this moment, like, let's step in and step closer, no matter what our connection is to Moses, with the idea that as we get closer to him and get closer to his relationship with God, that's actually going to instruct us for here and now. And I think if, if we open our life up to his life, seeing God's hand in his life, that can form us and mold us for God's hand in our life. And um, so diving into Moses and Moses as the author of Genesis, you know, someone might ask the question like, that was a really long time ago. How do we even know there was a Moses and how do we even know he actually wrote the book of Genesis? And his trivia is kind of like the author of the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And one, we could look at archaeology, we could look at this is what people have believed for almost 3,000 years, that he was the author of Genesis. But one source, just one source we could look to is God himself on earth talking about Genesis, Jesus actually refers to it as Moses' book <laughs> and of listening to Moses. Uh, look at John 5, verse 46. It says, "For it, Jesus, this is Jesus saying, for if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? And man, we could... We could spend all morning just on 
on diving into this, but the only, for the time being, all we'll glean from this amazing verse is citing Moses as the author of Genesis through Jesus's um, words. So a very high level, maybe the highest level, looking down on Moses's life, you can very easily split his life into three seasons. And each season, part one, part two, part three, is roughly about 40 years long. So he had a 40-year section, a 40-year section, and a 40-year section. So he lived to be 120 years old. And the things that we remember him of uh, didn't happen until post-80 years old, which is really stunning uh, what, what God did in his life. So when is this taking place? So the when and the where of Moses' life is roughly 1600 B.C., and we're going to look at incredible archaeological stuff as we walk through the book of Genesis that's just placing every people group mention, all these things in this place and in this time. But 1600 B.C., Moses is in Egypt, and Egypt is the only superpower of 1600 B.C., Okay, there isn't like Russia and the United States and China. There's Egypt. Egypt is the superpower of 1600 BC. This is the Egypt of the pharaohs, hieroglyphics, the pyramids, the most powerful society of the day. And some of their, some of their technological skills we're still trying to figure out, like the History Channel is still doing shows, trying to figure out how they accomplish some of the things that they accomplish. So a very advanced civilization, 1600 B.C., 2000 B.C., so 400 years before, is the time of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. So, so Moses is 400 years after that. But what happened 2000 B.C. was that you had a group of people that were smaller than the population of Collins, who in a severe drought leave and go to Egypt. Because when you're in a severe drought, the gift of Egypt is the Nile River. That is their water source. And if the Nile still has water, which I don't think the Nile, because it's spring-fed, and so if the Nile still is flowing, Egypt is great. Crops are great and all that stuff, uh, for, for the most part. We'll see in the book of Genesis, there's, there is some exceptions. So we, we have 2000 BC, a decently small group of people are going down to Egypt to survive. And by 1600 BC, that little group of people is now considered to be 2 million people. So they were faithful and multiplied. <laughs> um, but they've been slaves in Egypt for generations. 400 years, they are slaves in Egypt. And what happens is Pharaoh starts getting really nervous at all these people. And he's like, okay, we have these people under our thumb. We've got to convince that they're no better than dogs, you know, all this stuff. Uh, we, we use them, we abuse them, we don't care if they die, all this stuff. We, can, we treat them terribly. But there's two million of them. If they band together and maybe join with another country, 
they could do some serious damage from the inside out of our country. So what Pharaoh decides is it would probably be better if they don't exist. They're building the pyramids and stuff. They're doing great work, but it's too risky. So what Pharaoh tells, and we read of this in Scripture, but what Pharaoh tells the, the doulas, the midwives, is if it's a girl being born, a Jewish girl, let them survive. Let them live. They can marry Egyptian men. If it's a male, you have to kill them as soon as they're born. So that is a decree that is issued. And what his plan is, because think of this too, there are no Jewish people anywhere outside of this place. So all are accounted for as slaves in Egypt. There's not another country where there's a million of them that can you know, repopulate or whatever. So what his plan is, is a systematic and complete ethnic cleansing with every male being killed as soon as they're born. Well, the midwives refuse at the risk of their lives to carry this out. They refuse to do this, and this is the atmosphere that Moses is born into. So when Moses is born, he is supposed to have been killed instantly as soon as they see he's a boy. But instead, um, the, you know, they, they have clever ways that they do it, but the law had teeth. So they couldn't just be like, yeah, we're not going to follow it. They were, they were like, how are we going to hide him? How are we going to save his life? Because he, he could be killed at any time. So what his mom and his sister, it could have been others, but Scripture mentions his mom and his sister, what they decide to do is put him in a basket, float him down the Nile, but at the very time that Pharaoh's daughter is coming to the water. And they, they really gloriously stage this entire thing to get Moses to be adopted by Pharaoh's daughter. I mean, it's like, you can't write this. Um, it's, it's amazing. You can't make it up. And this starts the first season of Moses' life, which is that he is a prince of Egypt. He, he truly is a prince of Egypt. And as he is brought up as a prince, um, archaeologists, you know, that we, the Rosetta Stone helped us for the first time be able to read hieroglyphics. That was the first time that it was cracked. The code was because of the languages we knew were in parallel with the languages we didn't know, and they were able to figure it out. So since then, which is pretty new, um, archaeologists and scholars have been able to look at the education system of the Egyptians at this time, and they estimate that Moses had four bachelor degrees four master's degrees, and four PhDs in his education as a prince of Egypt. And this isn't like today, our society has a very specialized educational system. You know, it's kind of like the higher you go up, you, you think more deeply, but on a more narrow field, you know? So it's like, I, I have one hammer and one nail, and I'm the best guy hitting it, you know, or something. I'm not, not that's not me fully like slamming our educational system, but just to say like, um, the higher up you go, a lot of times you go way more specialized. For the Egyptians, uh, this is why their education system was leaning more towards competence 
and, and, and a breadth instead of a depth, maybe. And, the, and because you pursue the breadth, you get a depth. And so, so Moses had a, a very, um, was just well-educated. And there's a lot that we don't know. Like, we don't know, did, did Moses always know he was Jewish? Did Moses have a relationship with his mom and his sister for most of his life? What was his relationship like with Pharaoh? What was his relationship like with, with Pharaoh's daughter? Um, Hollywood has said way more than Scripture has said. But what we know for sure is that when he's about 40 years old, he sees an Egyptian beating a slave, a Jewish slave. Exodus 2 Verse 11 explains what happens. Uh, Verse 11 says, One day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people, Jewish. He went out to his people and he looked on their burdens. And he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. Verse 12, He looked this way and that, seeing if anybody was watching, seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian, kills him, and hid him in the sand. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? He answered, who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and he thought, surely the thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, what Moses has done, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. So he went out from Egypt, and when you go out from Egypt, you get away from the Nile River, which means you go into a desert. And there are some wells, and he found a well and sat down by a well. So in no place in Scripture does does God approve of what Moses did. And we're actually going to see that Moses has a short fuse. And some of the turning points of his life is when he totally loses his cool and, and just goes on this tirade of anger. And God still uses him and is still working in his life. But Moses's outburst of anger here um, means that he is leaving and he's not going to return for 40 years. He won't come back for 40 years. He lives in Midian. He marries. He has a family. But Hebrews 11, verses 24 through 26, it, it kind of, it's like in the midst of all of this, what's been happening like in Moses' heart as it relates to his, all of the wealth, power, everything he had access to in Egypt, and maybe what's happening inside of him to make him even act that way Um, Hebrews 11 says, By faith Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ, which is fascinating to think about that. As the author of Genesis, he knows even the earliest promises of a promised one who's coming. So it doesn't even say, like, he considered the reproach of Jesus. Christ isn't Jesus' last name. It's the promised one. So he considered even being scorned 
for the sake of the promised one to be greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. He was looking forward that whatever Jesus has to offer, and I think quite possibly at this time he doesn't even know his name, but whatever Jesus has to offer in the future is far greater than anything someone could give me now that is away from Jesus. So at 40 years old, Moses, it appears, is just surrounded by failure. Like it was like, man, he had so much potential, all that education, all of that position of power, and now he's in the desert. And he becomes a pilgrim on a pilgrimage. So I, pilgrim isn't totally exact, but I was trying to find a P, a corresponding P. So, so and there'll be another P coming to you, and another one after that. But, but first, he's, he's a prince, and now he's a pilgrim. And the second major 40-year section of his life, from 40 to 80, Moses lives in obscurity. It's the great school of obscurity that God has led many people into. During the most seemingly productive years of his life, he's obscure, away, influencing no one except for sheep. No offense to the sheep farmers, they can have incredible influence. <laughs> but, you know, it's culturally even seen at that time that he's like, I'm leading sheep, period, you know. And not, we're not culturally seen as being anything that the Egyptians uh, and we'll see this in the later chapters of the book of Genesis, the Egyptians despised anyone that was a shepherd. And decades, decades he's there. He's there for decades in obscurity. And one day Moses is out with the sheep and he views this bush or small tree that's on fire. It's very arid there, a lightning strike. It would not be crazy uncommon to see a lightning strike turn something, you know, burn something up. But what was crazy was that as Moses was seeing this, it was dark, you know, you can't miss it. He's watching this and it just doesn't burn up. It just keeps burning. It's like, it's the like eternal flame. It doesn't burn up and he has to go over and check it out. And when he goes over, God meets him there. God tells him he has seen the affliction of his people in Egypt. He has heard their cry he wants Moses to go and lead them out of Egypt. God tells Moses, Moses, I will be with you every step of the way. He will provide power. He will do so many miracles through Moses. It's an incredible time that is getting ready to happen in Moses' life. And all, it will be what makes Moses like one of the most famous human beings that's ever lived on earth. But Moses doesn't think he's cut out for it. And the conversation between Moses and God is unbelievable. Look at Exodus 4, verse 10. Moses said to the Lord, Oh, my Lord, I am not eloquent, either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant. I am slow of speech and of tongue. Trying to picture that, like, what is he, does he stutter really bad? Maybe like, um, is he just like, man, I should have said that. I just couldn't get the words out at the time. But he says, I am slow of speech and of tongue. The Lord said to him, who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now, therefore, go and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. Right here is when he should be like, yes, sir. Wow. 
I am so motivated to go and do what you've called me to do. Look what he says, verse 16. But he says in response, oh my Lord, please send someone else. Verse 14. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. And he said, is there not Aaron, your brother, the Levite? I know that he can speak well. Behold, he is coming out to meet you. And when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. You shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth. And I will be with your mouth and with his mouth and will teach you both what to do. He shall speak for you to the people and he shall be your mouth and you shall be his God to him and take in your hand the staff with which you shall do these signs. Um, this reminded me <laughs> of, I had the opportunity, I been walking with Jesus maybe for five years, maybe, and I went to spend a whole summer in Uganda with a buddy of mine who was from there and a pastor there, and I preached like 53 times in, in the course of a few weeks, and sometimes the people didn't know English, so I would speak, and then you had to learn how to speak with, you know, because I couldn't just keep going on and on, and the interpreter's like, time out. I got to interpret you. So there's like a rhythm that you get when you're, when you're speaking, you know, and they're interpreting and all that stuff. Well, there were a couple times that I was told like, hey, this is an English speaking school. Uh, the superintendent has graciously allowed you to come in and share whatever you want with the student. They've attend, you know, assembled the student body and want you to share whatever's on your heart, basically. And so it was awesome. I was able to talk about Jesus in school. But um, at one school, they were like, this is an English-speaking school. And so I started speaking, and no one could understand my English. Um, like, they were just like, your accent is a little hard for us to understand, you know. So we had someone interpret my English into English. <laughs> so I would say something, pause, and he, this person would say the exact same thing I said in English, and they totally understood him, you know? And so it, it, it made me kind of think of Moses this way. And interesting, you know, a sibling a lot of times does under, like if you have a major speech impediment or something, a sibling would probably be the best interpreter for you to speak in English what you're saying in English, you know? And so to have Aaron, you, you might not think of that because the movies don't portray it. You know, they portray Charlton Heston like coming in and being like, you know, you shall not pass. You know, I know I combine Lord of the Rings with Charlton Heston, but, you know, doing stuff like that uh, where instead like Moses was whispering it and Aaron was actually the one that was doing all of the talking. Um, and at 80 years of age, Moses goes back to Egypt. He leaves obscurity he enters the third 40-year season of his life, that of a prophet. So we had, we had prince, pilgrim, and now he enters into what many consider to be John the Baptist, Jesus says, the greatest prophet that ever lived. And I think likely Moses and Elijah are in the running for two of the more influential prophets as well. And what Moses' mission is, is to lead two million people out of Egypt lead two million people out of Egypt and set them free. And it's not like they're going to get airlifted out of Egypt. They're walking out. You know? like, it's like, guys, we're walking out. We're walking to the promised land from, from here. And look at Hebrews 11, 27-28. By faith, he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger 
of the king, the Pharaoh, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. So it's like, man, what's driving Moses? It's like, man, he's got his eyes on one who's invisible, but he's looking at him as he's doing the thing that God calls him to do. Now, we're, we're bypassing all these details of the ten plagues and all of these things, the water and all that stuff. But then here it does mention, by faith he kept the Passover, sprinkled the blood, so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. So Pharaoh said, kill all the boys. And the last plague is, if you don't repent and send the people out of Egypt, all the boys are truly dying. Your boys, not these boys. And the way that happens is you, anybody that will take the blood and put it over your door, your family is covered in the blood and death will not destroy. Which, I mean, is foreshadowing what it means to give your life to Jesus. It's foreshadowing all, all of those things. Um, all of this happens. Many beautiful things happen. So many powerful, beautiful, amazing things happen. The Ten Commandments are given. Uh, a people who were completely slaves are being transformed into a people closely following God's ways. And then in closely following God's ways, we're told that they will be a light for all nations to see how to come to God. So Moses is at the front of this thing. So many beautiful things are happening. And... So many terrible things are happening. There will be the level of sin that was happening among these people who had just been miraculously led out of Egypt, set free from slavery. The amount of sin that they committed is, I mean, there are details I know that was just like, just inappropriate. I just can't share them in this setting. Um, they go as X-rated as you could get, as terrible as you could get, in just the blink of an eye. To the point that not a single adult that leaves Egypt is going to make it to the promised land. They're all gonna, they're gonna be hundreds of thousands of funerals in the desert. Caleb and Joshua are the only two, not even Moses, Caleb and Joshua are the only two that are allowed to make it out of the desert. And what the mission will become is discipling their kids to grow up and to be people that their kids will grow up and will take the land and step into the promised land. And so the mission became these people realizing how much they had sinned. And Moses loses his temper so bad that he smashes the Ten Commandments. God has just given them to him, and he loses temper, just like, you know, just smashing them. Uh, there's a time that, a great time of need, he, out of anger, hits this rock uh, when he should have been leading them in an incredible way. And so there's a time when God tells Moses, climb up this mountain. <laughs> the promised land is just right there. And I've climbed this mountain and just thought about this. Uh, he tells Aaron, go with your, well, Aaron had died too before, but he, Moses is told, go up this mountain, and when you get to the top, you'll see where people are being led, but you're going to die at the top. Could you imagine that walk? God's told you, when you get up there, you'll, you'll die. And that's what happens. Moses gets up there, and he dies. Um, 
during this last 40 years, though, is believed when he wrote the book of Genesis. Okay? So really taking it home. It's believed in these last 40 years that he likely wrote the book of Genesis. Now here, I think, why this is so deep and moving and applicable to us is Moses led the people out of Egypt. And I think even Moses would say it took the might of God, but that was the easy part. Leading the people out of Egypt was the easy part. The hard part, getting Egypt out of the people. Easy part, getting out of Egypt. Hard part, getting Egypt out of the people. So even when they're no longer in Egypt, they're... Everything that they've ever been told about, about creation, about the way life is, the way to think of yourself as basically a dog slave. In the first chapter of Genesis, it's like God created it, it is good, and he made you in his image. And they could easily be like, where is he getting this? This isn't anything I've been taught my entire life for many of the slaves of Egypt. And so the book of Genesis is so crazy foundational because what God is doing is he's not just being like, oh, go ahead, people. He is having to rewire the heart, mind, soul, and strength of every person who all that they've known is slavery. He's rewiring them into becoming nation builders. He's taking people with this very fixed negative mindset and freeing them to have a growth mindset and a creator. You are made in the image of God who's the creator. And you can now create a society. And God is with them every step of the way and is forming them. But for them, they had to get Egypt out of them. And Moses is writing because he's not going to be there for all of it. And where, and we could just, there's a, a way you can look at Moses and be like, man, he didn't finish well, or that just like, it was a struggle fest the whole way, or whatever it may be, um, and it's real. Like, you just see a real leader, really empowered by God, and really a man. But what I love is the, the, um, the my final four P is promised land. Like, because it was like, hey, you're not able to be in the promised land. Moses missed it. But if you remember, when Jesus goes up to the Mount of Transfiguration, so there's a time where like Jesus just gets kind of like unleashed and a few of his disciples get to see it. Peter makes like the bonehead statement like, hey, we should live here. Let's put some tents. This is awesome. Let's do this all the time. And, but remember who Jesus was talking to was Moses and Elijah. So even during the ministry of Jesus, Moses is in the promised land. So it's like, it works out fine. Uh, God's got him. Um, and the, the big question, and man, what I've been praying into is like, I know that there's so much in his life for our life. It's so much just in the background of Genesis. And we just looked at just a part of what we can look into. But even in the background of Genesis for us, for our lives, for this next year as a church. But the more that I walk with Jesus, the more I realize how much of Egypt was in me. And how much of Egypt is still in me? If you look at Egypt as like 
the philosophies, the power, the way to happiness, the, the things, the significant things, all of these things that Moses feasted on for the first 40 years of his life that was like, without God, here's the best we have to offer is Egypt. And then Moses was like, I, I think I want him. And all of that stuff that just got wired in me, I want that to get out of me. I want to be reformed. I want to be re-discipled. I want to be reborn, really, in the ways of him, not in the ways of all my default ambitions and movements and all that stuff. And it's like, here's the book of Genesis to get started. And I think some of the most like, whoa, I can't believe we're saying this in church type stuff. I feel like the Lord's calling us to walk into in the book of Genesis and we'll be hopefully appropriate with all of that. But a huge question for us this morning is like, would you come out of Egypt, first of all? Would you allow God to lead you to freedom from slaves to sin? Is one thing we all have in common that Scripture teaches us is that we are bound to sin and need to be powerfully empowered to be led out of that being what holds us. Would you come out of Egypt and then would you pursue Egypt coming out of you? Would we each forsake even the treasures of Egypt to have the treasures of Jesus. And I love in chapter 11 how it says, he endured, he endured as seeing him who is invisible. And man, I want that. Like, I want people to, to look at me, to look at BJ, to look at Hannah, Audrey, like, to look at them and be like, man, the way that they're able to live, it's like they've got their eyes on somebody else. I can't see right now who they're looking at, but I can tell they're looking at somebody else, and that is massively impacting their life. If Moses is that way, and we, like this is here for us. We are the ones with the baton in our hands today. Um, so Lord, I just ask that you would, on this our birthday, we thank you that you're the one that builds your church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And Lord, would you build your church by building each of us right now? If it's we need to repent of things, would we be swift to do that? If maybe Egypt has been shame just saturating us, would freedom be that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus? And would our eyes on you allow us to endure seeing you who is invisible? And so, Lord, would you build us? Would you consecrate us for this journey that we're going on? And Lord, we just desperately need you. We know that you are present, that you're living to intercede for us. The Spirit is counseling us, empowering us. And Lord, we just say, yes, more of you, less of Egypt. More of you, less of Egypt. That's what we're yearning for. Jesus, in your name, we pray these things. Amen. Amen. All right, well, a powerful way to commune with Jesus who is invisible at this moment, but is present, is communion. This was his idea. The Huntrods will be serving us this morning. And um, the way we do it here is we, we pause, we look to the Lord, look to him to form us. And then we come boldly to the table. This is for anyone who has come to Jesus, who's given their life to him. Um, they'll 
serve the bread, just hold your hands out. They'll give you the bread, uh, then wine or juice, obey your conscience there. And we come down the center and take the elements. Then we remain standing. We take this together as one family. And if you're here and you're Methodist or Presbyterian or Lutheran background or whatever it may be, if you have come to a time that you have given your life to Jesus, you have renounced your sin, embraced his offer of salvation, you're in the family of God. And this is a meal for the family of God. If you're like, I'm not sure where I'm at with him. Um, I might have grown up in one of those things, but I don't even know if he's real. I would say, don't come to the table. Come to him. Or at least pray to him and say, if you're real, would you start showing this to me? Uh, I want to know these things. I don't want to be in the dark on these important matters. So so let's spend some time in prayer, and then let's come, and then I'll lead us in taking it from there.